This is Beyond Species, a podcast exploring issues around speciesism and the struggle to dismantle it. Welcome to the episode. I'm Tofu Steve. In this episode, we hear from Connie. Connie is a founding member of the Agriculture Fairness Alliance and Vegan Justice League based in the US. She speaks about the need for vegans to get political and direct much needed resources into lobbying for system change. Connie explains how the supply and demand rhetoric of the vegan movement fails within a food system rigged by government and industry. This results in overproduction and stockpiling. Human and non-human animal issues are inextricably linked and a holistic approach is needed if we want to achieve animal liberation. If you want to start then by giving us an introduction to how you got into activism. Yeah, so I turned vegan almost 10 years ago and I was not as progressive as I am now. And I was probably somebody that took a while to get into activism. I hear people today that go vegan and instantly get into activism. And I, I'm so proud of them for doing that. Because in my head, I just, I didn't think about it. I spoke to as many people as possible about veganism. But let's just take ourselves back to 2010 for a second. Facebook wasn't like this video, show your face, live video feed. Um, let me show how I'm doing activism and giving you all these techniques and creative, creative ideas. It was very much just connecting with friends. In fact, you probably at that time only had 75 to 200 people on your Facebook friends list and they literally were people you know. It, is, it wasn't until a long time later when you started finding friends that agreed with your veganism or your climate uh, person perspective that you started integrating your circles into worldwide people that you had never met. So 2010, I went vegan and it took me all the way till, uh, I want to say till 2014 until I saw activism on Facebook. Mm. And I started joining here and there um, from 2014 to 2016. I had gone and done a few fur marches in New York City. I had done um, some marches in Los Angeles. Uh, and, you know, I want to be very clear that I love activism. And I'll tell you a little bit more about the type of activism I sort of um, created and then do. But at the time, marching on the street with a small sign didn't feel comfortable to me. It didn't match my personality. And so I would fight so much traffic in Los Angeles to get to this march, half of the time showing up late, even if I left an hour and a half early. And I had to carve out my entire day to uh, join a march where people were yelling at people that were looking at them with a sign that said things that were really out of context, like meat is murder or mm -hmm. animal liberation. And I was thinking like, does animal liberation even make sense to a seventh grade mindset, which is, it didn't even make sense to me. I didn't like, what really is animal liberation? Is that animal freedom? Like, tell me about it. You know, it just, is so out of context. Nothing wrong with people who make these 
signs that have catchphrases. But the reality is, is like, you're expecting somebody that's walking on the street that can hear your muffled speaker and know what you're talking about. And all of these signs have somebody's advertisement on it, like PETA or DXC or whatever. So then people are like, oh, a bunch of PETA marchers are walking by. And you're like, I actually don't have any relationship with PETA at all. And not, I mean, not that you know, it's here or there, just pointing out like how we're representing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And you're saying meat is murder, which is a speciesist concept, which you've not even unpacked that with the audience for them mm-hmm. to understand that murder means, you know, uh, killing uh, any being regardless mm-hmm. of human or animal, because in their head, um, they, they're speciesist. So I just really struggled with those events. I felt like it built some camaraderie with other activists and they, you know, put so much work into getting people there. The reality is, is marches were hard to be effective without, without a lot of people there. And so you couldn't do them every day. You had to gather and organize enough people, maybe once a month, maybe a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So I, I joined those and I just wondered about how effective they were. Um, you know, I was, I would always put myself in the shoes of somebody sitting and eating dinner or lunch on a street or just in a car and watching a march. And I'm thinking like, can they even read what our sign says? Like you have to have really good vision to look, mm-hmm to see something past 10 feet away, you know, especially if the march is going up a street and all the people are here and your signs are facing that way or that way, are you holding your signs that way? Are you holding them this way? (laughs) What I'm saying is like, (laughs) I was just thinking, how would I feel if I was sitting there? Would I be like, you know what? I'm going to look into that veganism stuff. Mm. (laughs) And so anyways, Nothing against marches. I'm just pointing out that it didn't actually fit my personality all that well to Mm -hmm. kind of yell at people. I really wanted to have conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, So then the last march that I I was in, I feel like I changed my sign. I didn't want to hold someone else's sign and I made a big sign. Mm -hmm. And it said that I was anti-oppression, that I was against homophobia, against Islamophobia, against, uh, you know, um, uh, racism of any sort, sexism, and against speciesism and, mm-hmm. you know, um, oppressing and exploiting animals. And it's funny that we think about that so long ago, 2000, I don't know, um, between 15 and 16, I think. Mm-hmm. And we bring it all the way till today and how intersectionality and inclusivity is such a hot topic. Back then, I was already telling people, hey, I'm on your side, Mm. regardless of the exploitation and the oppression. And by the way, I'm also vegan. And by the way, I'm anti-oppression to animals. Like literally, that was what my sign was. Mm. So I started activism with that mindset. um, But again, it I was searching for something that was more effective and matched my personality. I was an advertising major in college a long time ago. Um, Mm. I think I was in college almost 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And advertising back then um, probably is, you know, the textbook is probably different than it is today. But one of the things that is still true today is that your message has to align with the demographic that you're trying to convince to do what you want to do. Yeah. And if you have this one message reach reaches all 
approach, mm. you're going to have a lot of trouble. Um, you really mm. have to pick a target audience and mm. have a message for that target audience, or you have to diversify your messages for different mm. audiences, for young people, for, um, you know, parents versus single people, for different ethnicities, um, you know, things like that. And so I wanted to come up with a way where I could be effective without requiring a ton of people to join my activism. So um, back in 2016, Trump was elected. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a horrible time. Yeah, God, Trump right. Started. Trump was elected, and I saw this article about someone in Atlanta put a giant message on the side of a hotel building and it said F Trump, but it spelled out F. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was a light and the light spelled out the message. So it was essentially using shadows and lights. Mm -hmm. And it said the article was, was basically talking about how impactful this form of free speech was because mm -hmm. light isn't vandalism. So it's not against the law. He was on a public sidewalk, so he's not trespassing. Mm -hmm. um, and it was saying that the police were having trouble sh figuring out a way to get him to shut down. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's exactly what we need. That means I could be one person, one set of equipment, have mm -hmm. a message that is giant and can be seen mm -hmm. by a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to figure out how to do it. I was living in LA, dating uh, what somebody outside of LA would probably stereotype about LA. I was dating a guy who was a hip hop video director. <laughs> and he was this guy that was like driving me nuts because he was rotating women and this and that. And I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I'm not getting anything from him positive and I'm not getting any of my needs met, but I'm going to figure out what that light is. <laughs> so I asked him, even though he drove me nuts and I said, Hey, <laughs> what is that giant light and how can I figure out how to do it? And he pointed me at this lighting store he uses. It's actually like a big time, you know, a movie and, um, uh, video production place and I went there and sure enough they showed me what I needed mm. and I started doing um this activism and someone coined it as the vegan batman light like the bat signal and I started putting messages on walls all over Los Angeles I started doing it in Vegas um Phoenix Arizona um in Oklahoma in Texas I would put it on hotels I'd put it on sporting event um places like the Staples Center in Los Angeles or the or Talking Stick Park in, in um near Phoenix and it was so effective because I would put messages that would say something like fact or fiction 99% of every animal you eat is under is under six months old go vegan and you have to understand how big this message is. Every letter is the size of a human body. So five to six feet tall. And it can be seen a half mile away. And so people would come up and find me. The light would be somewhere way over there. And they'd mm -hmm. be like, where is the light coming from? So they'd have to do a little scavenger hunt <laughs> to find out where I was standing. And they'd come and they weren't pissed off. Like 99% of the time mm -hmm. they were not pissed off. They were actually like, is that true? And great conversations happen. So I started doing that three or four days a week. 
I started teaching other groups to do it. I really thought that was going to be my thing and how mm. I impacted exponentially driving veganism. I was going to, mm. I was going to shape out to create a bunch of chapters. Mm. And then this leads to kind of our next part of the discussion. That's when my activism had a shift. So I started activism in other people's activism, 2014 and 15. And then I started the vegan Batman light in 2016. Mm-hmm. And so you had good responses for people who would come and find the light and other groups were interested in having the lights as well. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so what was it then that, that, because it sounds like you could uh, like get the attention of a lot of people imagining a lot of these cities are quite busy and mm-hmm. like you say, it's a huge light. So a lot of people are going to see these visuals and also the message is like, um, it's kind of like being taken in passively. So, you know, you're not like shouting at people, which is the thing that you didn't think was the right fit for you either, or and probably not effective either. So what was the shift then that made you decide you want to move on from the bat light? If I could have replicated myself into two people, I completely would still do Batman light. It is a lot of fun. It, there are also people that get crazy with you. I've had people try to take my equipment away. Mm-hmm. I've had almost 80 some on police interactions. I've had police helicopters, drones. Um, I've had sure. all of it. It was an exciting life and teaching other groups, you know, you'll see it in Toronto and in Los Angeles where they just, the, the animal saves display it on the slaughterhouses to your point about how many people could passively see it. If I put it along a freeway, you could have 10,000 people see it in a matter of 30 minutes. Um, depending on if you're in rush hour or where you're at, Mm -hmm. it was so effective to, because it's, it, it has that billboard esque model to your point passive reading. They don't feel judged. I think one of the things that I had mentioned to you before is that we all have our hierarchies of how we feel about a message coming out and who we find to be relatable versus not. Mm. And me holding a sign versus a male holding a sign versus, Mm. you know, a older person holding a sign or younger person holding a sign is, is viewed differently from a different audience member. Yeah. When you take that completely away, the personal mm-hmm. attachment to whatever I look like away, and it's just this really cool mm-hmm. giant light strobing across a giant wall and you can't, you know, you can't place any hierarchies mm-hmm. to that person's face. Um, it really is something that people just kind of like absorb and think about. They're mm-hmm. thinking about it without any of their biases. Yeah, And so if I could have replicated myself, I absolutely would continue doing it. And I do think about sometimes of getting less lack of sleep and still doing it at night. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I am really, really busy. I work full time all day. And then I volunteer doing what's next at night. So here's where the shift Mm. happened. Um, Since I had been vegan a long time, my career actually shifted into being more data driven. So advertising with an overlay of data and kind of like, it's kind of like you're a data analyst, but you're finding audiences and how they react to things in order to figure out if those advertising messages are correct. I mean, think of the types of companies that I've worked for. I mean, these are some of the largest media companies and data companies that, that in the United States and the world that you've heard of. Mm -hmm. And with that mindset, 
of looking at data and looking at, you know, success metrics, I'm like, you know what, this was in 2016 or 17. I'm like, the shelf space that exists of plant-based milk mm -hmm. in every shelf across the United States, whether you're in Los Angeles mm -hmm. or in some podunk middle America, because I've driven across the country many times, mm -hmm. middle America city with a gas station as their grocery store, you still see anywhere from 10 to 20% shelf space of plant-based milk. That to me was symbolic of this shift of supply and demand to where that meant that the more shelf space that plant-based milk took up meant we should start seeing an increase in how many dairy cows are produced. Mm -hmm. So I start following this and I start looking at the USDA website. Here in the United States, I recommend anybody who listens to this or watches this to understand that you can't listen to uh, stats about production that are calculated off of would-be, could-be math of what we've been told is you go vegan and you save 100 to 200 animals per year. Yeah. How are you tracking that? Have you ever looked at the production stats ever? Because like your bank account, when you withdraw money mm -hmm. and you want to see what's left over, right? Mm -hmm. Or you save money and you want to see how much. You don't just have someone say, you could have saved money. You go on your mm -hmm. bank account. And so mm -hmm. we need to go on the USDA production websites. And that's what I started doing. And I realized every time that they said that they didn't sell and that there was hundreds of thousands to billions of dollars, which just happened recently of losses. Mm. I'm like, that should equate to the following quarter or the following year, if mm -hmm. you base it off of seasonality, that they would make a, an adjustment to prevent them from oversupplying and therefore losing money. And then I started finding out about all these bailouts and insurance policies and backup plans. And sure enough, they never decrease their production. Like not even not decreasing it, but sometimes they blasphemously increase it. Mm. And then they, they are basically like so uh, egotistical about these bailouts. Like they don't even care now. They, they realize that all of America doesn't care about elite farmer welfare, which is what mm. it is. America only cares about people getting welfare to, to buy groceries. That's the only time America's like, I don't want my taxes going to your grocery, $125, $140 grocery. Or America's like, I don't want my taxes paying for the healthcare of undocumented immigrants or undocumented workers. So America cares a lot about where their taxes go there, but America doesn't care about their taxes when it's basically forcing the dairy industry to be successful. So I think I probably combined two different thought processes there. The first is what I uncovered is a deep, dark secret in the United States, which is that the food system is rigged. Hmm. It doesn't work off supply and demand at all mm -hmm. because the sad reality is, is that same evil industry that hmm. abuses and exploits animals and all humans surrounding that, that industry has made it to where they are fail proof. And they've done this since 1933 and have just rigorously increased their safeguards more and more all the way till today. What that's done is it's made our taxes be pulled out mm. 
and used to buffer all their losses that our consumerism isn't buying. So the problem is, is that our consumerism isn't actually liberating animals because our taxes, each one of us, is, is being used to bail them out. Mm -hmm. So when I found this out, my heart broke. I thought it, I was, I was like, because it's not that somebody said directly, there's a few, there's several articles you can find that'll say it directly. They'll talk a lot about a gaming the system, but they don't triangulate it to what it means to be a vegan in the United States. No one triangulates it to say, Hey, vegans, you're getting screwed, you know, because you're, you're not able to liberate animals. You have economists telling us we're getting screwed, not vegans mm. that we're getting screwed. But nobody triangulated it to say, vegans, your moral philosophy is impossible if you pay taxes. Yeah, because I've, I've read some of these articles about like the milk uh, and the cheese there, and it never really makes that connection. It's true, like you say, that like, oh, you know, vegans think they're buying their way to liberation here, but they're not. It's all just this talk about like, uh, you know, um, subsidies and it's all kind of like economics and a bit dry and like it's all the way it's always been and you know it's like a little a bit of a paralysis of, because yeah. of lack of understanding really uh -huh. people use the word subsidies as an umbrella statement they don't really understand what that means mm -hmm. and subsidies are one thing and bailouts are another subsidies mm -hmm. if we unpack that is basically making their overhead cost like nothing and so the way to look at that is in simple terms is let's say that I started a t-shirt company mm -hmm. and let's say that the cost of, I wanted to sell the shirt for t-shirt, a vegan t-shirt for $30 mm -hmm. and the cost of the shirt is 15. The cost of putting the ink and the, the design on the shirt is five. And so that means my production cost or overhead cost is 20. If you have employees, then you have to bake that in. If you have a storefront, then you have to bake that in. Mm -hmm. And then a, a store owner or a product owner or service owner then figures out what cost to set the product at so they can profit and continue to you know, be successful. Now, the way that the, the meat and dairy industry works in the United States and most westernized countries is that we pay for all of their production costs, the majority of them. We pay for their land. Our taxes do. Those are what subsidies do. They pay for the land. They pay for the water. They pay for the feed. They pay for their um, gap insurance policies, which is basically what dairy does, which means if they expected a certain price point and they didn't get it, then it's like gap insurance where it pays the difference. It pays for insurance if the animal dies um, on transport and slaughter, insurance for floods and everything else, fires, you name it. Mm. And so our taxes pay for all of their risk, all of their overhead costs for factory farms mostly and for mega farms mostly. Small farms, the really small family farms don't actually get that much help, which is why they're going bankrupt. But that, their bankruptcy isn't a barometer of saving animals. It's a barometer that the mega farmers have become uh, have monopolized and pushed them out mm -hmm. and are getting all of those subsidies. So that's mm -hmm. subsidies. Bailouts are in addition to that. Mm -hmm. Bailouts mean that some market condition didn't allow them to sell and they whined about it 
The market condition is always different. It's always something, by the way. Like it literally is always something. And right. then they beg for a bailout and like clockwork, because they have so much political power here, mm. they get the bailout. They got $28 billion last year mm -hmm. and they don't have to pay it back. And not only that, but the 28 billion, as if that wasn't enough, they then overproduce again this year. And the same thing is happening. And Trump tweeted that he's going to give, don't worry farmers, I'm gonna, I'm gonna release another giant bailout. And that's our taxes, bailing them out of their losses. And not to mention economist articles last year said that we overpaid them so much that the, it was one of the most profitable years ever. So all those animals that didn't sell get put in a stockpile or just milk gets dumped left and right. You can find articles if your users want to look. Pennsylvania and the Northeast specifically continuously dump out milk. And so they, they created these new programs that hopefully will start distributing it to the poor. Um, but nonetheless, in the United States, we have a stockpile that is so big that the current news said there is not enough storage space left at all for meat and dairy. So we don't even have enough storage space. It's, it's, oh, it was in 2018, four to four and a half billion pounds of unsold meat and dairy. For them to say they've lost, they don't even have enough storage space, I don't doubt it's, it's five to six billion pounds. That is 250 million unsold animals mm -hmm. at least. In fact, um, I found an article that said there was a 12% rise in the chicken stockpile which equates to 957 million pounds of chicken. If some people say that the, the poundage per chicken is four pounds and some people say it's six, mm -hmm. if it's six pounds, that means 159 million chickens. It's actually 159.666, which is 160 million chickens mm. increased. Since last year. So. Yep. If that is four, four pound chicken, it's 239 million. So, I mean, think of how, like I said, and that's just chicken. There's an 11% increase in pork of, of what's stockpiled. I'm telling you, <laughs> this industry is so effed up. Mm. And the way they do it is they use our government officials and our government to be their business development arm. You have to look at the government as like the sales guy for meat and dairy mm -hmm. because that's what they do. They use our taxes and they use our taxes to market back to all the little kids in schools mm -hmm. and raise everybody to have this like insatiable desire to eat meat. And then when demand goes down, they just go and they go sell, they go continue to sell meat to other countries. Trump was in India uh, a couple weeks ago trying to create a new trade deal. He was also in, you know, speaking with the UK who had blocked our food from there because of all the chemicals. And that's about to open up. It is, it is a priority of, of every government is pushing meat and dairy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that even in Scotland, the uh, the Scottish government is really keen on, like, supporting. I mean, they they think of it as the rural economy, but a lot of it isn't actually that rural. Like, slaughterhouses in near cities and so on. But um, you know, they'll 
this is like Scotland has this traditional image of, um, you know, farmers and um, we're known for having um, like Aberdeen Angus beef and like high quality salmon and all this. Government is often giving grants to um, facilities to increase. And it, it all comes down to jobs, really, because um, if they can create 250 new jobs, that's all the government really gives a shit about, right, really. So. But just why is the government cherry picking that industry? That's what I'm yeah. saying, because a lot of other industries either need help from the government mm -hmm. or don't. In the example of the Chinese tariffs that caused the bailout, their electronics industries had to deal with those tariffs. Automo automotive industries, every industry that trades with China had to deal with the losses of that trade deal because of tariffs. And our government didn't bail any of them out. So the cherry picking is because of political power, right? Mm -hmm. And so, in Scotland, for example, I, I haven't read up on that, but I would guess the reason that that specific industry continues to get help is the same reason as it is here. Either the elected officials were born on a farm, have ties to a farm, were pushed into um, getting elected by people in the from their own lobbying group. A lot of it has to do with the political power and the political voice that farmers and mega farmers have done such a good job organizing to, to create that channel of communication and do. So, you know, I see that it could create jobs fine, but why are all these other industries having to privately, you know, do that themselves? All these other industries are having to find their own success without using people's tax dollars to do it. When the government says they're going to do grants, that's coming from Scottish people's tax money mm -hmm. right it's mm -hmm. not just grants that just formulate money out of nowhere it's from the public's money yeah yeah it's like it's like when it comes to food i say food when it comes to animals used as food it's 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 because it's i guess it's seen as a necessity by people and it's this like thing that you can't if they don't support the farmers you know we're going to have food supply issues and that kind of thing which is obviously realistically not the real issue for people that actually know stuff about it but that's that's why i think it's such a, a sensitive topic that the public don't want to go near and the politicians always want to be seen to like be supporting these traditional farming methods which uh you know is not really that's just that image of you know the the, the farmer with the happy animals and stuff that so many people have all around the world so that's a myth as well yeah. another problem that that does is it keeps the same people in power and so in the united states and i don't know what the stats are in different parts of europe and across the world but the reality is here 99.5 percent of every person that got that 28 billion dollar bailout was white 91 percent was white male and so the problem with this whole traditional idea is you're keeping us the same undiverse persona who founded this country, who brought slaves over, who obliterated indigenous people, you're keeping those same families in power all the way through today using our taxes as welfare and having them act like wag their finger at anyone who's dependent on government taxes and welfare, like, oh yeah, that's not, that's not how this country works. I'm not gonna have my taxes paid when we actually are doing that for an elite population. And so, um, 
You know, another thing is that empathy that people have to people who grow our food, mm. like in the United States, you know, that empathy, like you need to really think about it for a second. One in five people here in the United States are in hunger. 52% of people in the United States can hardly make ends meet. And they're withholding a four to six billion pound stockpile that could feed the entire country. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like having empathy towards people that are withholding food from hungry, we should yeah. not have empathy for them. Yeah, and absolutely. then, and, and I think that the other part of that is, is that a lot of the problems that, you know, people talk about in the United States about, oh, let's spend $30 billion building a wall, right? Because mm -hmm. undocumented immigrants keep coming over. Mm -hmm. Well, first off, undocumented workers are coming here because of big agriculture, because everybody's well aware that they recruit and hire them because they, they pay them 30% less, which makes them profit more, big agriculture profit more. The government's well aware because they have these work visas, these seasonal work visas that they're, they're writing, you know, that that's who their workers are. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, is that they're not on any medical benefit. So there's recent articles that talk about like two amputations happen, I don't know, like per mm -hmm. week or something. Mm -hmm. So they're not protected at all. They can't whistleblow because yeah. if they whistleblow, they're going to not only like not get paid, but they're going to be like, you know, sent mm. back. And then the other thing that is crazy is mm. child labor. In the United States, it is legal for a migrant worker, a seasonal worker, to be a child as long as the parents approve it. So our child labor laws only mean something for citizens. This industry is allowed legally to hire children. So we have empathy towards like some of the cruelest mm. um, people, not just to animals, to, but to other humans and to the environment that exist. And we need to stop. Like if we're going to, if we're going to like, you know, if we're going to have these values, we need to have values that aren't hypocritical. And so, you know, I spend a lot of time educating people on this and trying to expose it. It's a lot. I know I'm like dishing out a gazillion things. People mm -hmm. are like, Oh my God, my <laughs> taxes are paying for this. And Oh my God, we have child labor. I, mm. <laughs> <laughs> there's just so much that yeah. this does. So what's the solution then? Um, because obviously it sounds like it's highly complex and the meat industry's really got their uh, claws in species is they've really got their fingers in deep uh in, in into the whole kind of political establishment and it sounds like then that the farmers are actually the elite how do we go about fixing this situation well first off food is political and everybody in our movement needs to get on the same page with that the problem is is that right now too many people in this movement say that it's not and they're leading us in the absolute wrong direction and i don't know why they keep doing it i don't know if they're afraid of politics i don't know if um uh you know that they're just not like understanding how to measure success mm. you know 
I mean, measuring success based on how many fast food restaurants there are with vegan options, measuring success on how many vegans you meet, measuring success on how many people join your activism, that is how many vegans there are. That isn't how many animals that were saved. And so we have to get everybody on the same page of that. Otherwise, we are never going to save or liberate any animals. Mm -hmm. Right now in the current food system, literally we are making plant-based companies mega freaking rich mm -hmm. and not one animal is being saved unless you do open rescue. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first part. The second part is lobbying. Lobbying is the solution for a lot of this because food is political and you have to have a a good channel of communication to communicate to these politicians that are either pushing new agriculture laws or ushering them over because not all of them are in bed with agriculture. Some of them who aren't are just taking their information because dun 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 Big agriculture has a bunch of lobbyists. Those lobbyists are in DC all the time. Those lobbyists are courting and creating relationships with politicians. You will literally see if you wanted to Trump standing with the cowboys from the farm bureau, which is their big lobby right behind them all the time in these cowboy hats, shaking hands, high-fiving each other. Trump has that hat that across the world you've seen that says make America great again. It's red. He also has, and find these videos, they're so awful to see, a green hat that says, make farmers or farming great again. And in that conference, he's like, this is when he announced that 28 billion bailout. He's literally tossing this hat to the audience like he's like making it rain with money, yeah. which is our taxpayer money, mm -hmm. you know, our vegans hard earned money that's mm -hmm. going, going to, to make this industry completely successful. So I shifted from activism to educating and talking about this any chance that I get. Mm -hmm. And I founded a lobbying group. Um, I wanted to find one that existed already that was attacking this, this federally. And I found a bunch of great ones that were statewide that were changing these laws uh, or changing laws. Um, there was a national one. It's a plant-based um, association. It's an org that helps plant-based companies with a lot of the, the battles that they have, which right now I feel like they're drowning in definitions across states of can you use the word milk? Can you use the word meat? Mm. And that stuff's expensive because think of how, you know, a plant-based company literally has to change their packaging state by state. So they're, they're working on that. You have um, health orgs like PCRM who's working on the health angle. Mm. So I was hoping there already was one that was working specifically with presence in DC um, to reduce that stockpile and to change laws that were basically making that happen. And since there wasn't one, I founded one. Mm -hmm. Am I a lobbyist? No. Mm -hmm. um, I'm acting as a quarterback. And I knew that if I paralyzed myself because I wasn't a lobbyist, that this issue would just keep going on forever. And so um, I knew that all I needed to do was to partner with, with a professional career lobbyist who lived it and breathed it and knew what was going on so that, you know, that we could, we could do this. Um, I co-founded the, um, I co-founded Vegan Justice League, uh, which is, 
I'll, I'll explain in a second, but I co-founded Vegan Justice League with um, somebody who was also doing the same sort of work and realizing that our taxes was actually blocking us. Her name is Laura Reese. Mm -hmm. um, she is American born, but lives in Italy. And so she has a really great perspective. She does a lot of activism, um, but she also knows that this is, uh, this is really the new course that vegans have to take. So first we went vegan, then we became activists. Now we must lobby to liberate animals. And um, we've, we, after a year, we celebrated because we actually hired the lobbyist through all of the communication, but we have to scale. Um, the truth is, is one lobbyist is great for that one piece of legislation, but we need a team. And I need your help and your audience's help to do that because I don't have enough friends on my friends list to, to tell this story and to, to get them to donate. Um, your donation is like a membership. It's the same playbook as the agriculture industry does. They take small amounts mm -hmm. from all of their mega farmers and then they combine that and that's how they hire a bunch of lobbyists. We have way more vegans. We're over double the size vegans than, than how many uh, mega farmers there are. We're at, at least 3%. They are 1.5%. We absolutely can do this. Not everybody has to dish out a lot of money. It's just an imperative to be a member and understand that you don't have to understand politics. The lobbying group, we try to help you with that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a politics pro. I'm not a lawyer. I I'm really just trying to gather and, and get normal non-political vegans mm -hmm. to realize what the problem is, mm -hmm. what the solution is, and energize us in a way that asks us the question, how bad do we want to liberate animals? Do we want mm -hmm. it bad enough that we're going to figure out and get political? Mm -hmm. And um, so that's, you know, that's, that's mm -hmm. where things are at. Yeah, because, uh, I mean... You'll probably be frustrated, uh, as a lot of people are, that in the vegan movement, there are so many kind of YouTubers, social media celebrities who receive, I mean, they make their livings and good livings off donations. And they're also, a lot of them funded by other kind of like venture capitalist companies and so on, and sponsored by plant-based companies. And a lot of money goes their way because vegans think, well, these people are out there making these videos, they're creating vegans, supply and demand. This is the best and quickest way to achieve this. And actually what you're saying is you're desperate for, for money to be able to scale up this lobbying approach because that's where the real change is going to happen because the supply and demand thing isn't working in this rigged system. So we need to get vegans to wake up and realize that you know, that people spend as well uh, 10, 15 pounds on like a fancy burger and some chips at a restaurant and stuff. And um, that could be their membership money per yeah. month. That could just, you know, you're absolutely right. It doesn't take a whole lot. It just takes it, you know, people to make this connection. Um, if you think about a veg fest, for example, you have anywhere from 3,000 to 10,000 people that show up. Everybody spent probably $5 in some form of uh, transportation, whether it's gas or whether it is, you know, um, public transportation to and from. Some people um, are going to spend money on food there anywhere from 7 to 
$40 on food um, and whatever's relative to pounds there. One veg fest, I don't want people to not go have fun and have veg fest, but one veg fest of 10,000 people, you know, spending five or $10 is a full-time lobbyist for a year. So I just would like to get, we have one, I would just like to get to five. I, I would like them to, to be able to diversify what they're doing. I, we need to get to a point where we have every vegan voter accounted for. So when we go with our paperwork, we can say, this is how many vegan voters we have that will either vote for you or not vote for you. What are you going to do for us lately? You know, mm -hmm. what are you going to do for us? Mm -hmm. Um, so that, you know, we possess that political power. You know, imagine like, I don't know if you, you've been watching mm -hmm. the, the Democratic side elections over here in the United States, but we're in a situation where big agriculture gets pandered to by every candidate, whether it's Trump or Bernie. They're mm -hmm. so socially opposite on the people side, mm -hmm. but they're exactly the same. Mm -hmm. in the agriculture side. We have to get rid of that. We have to start negotiating better with these candidates. And we need to, you know, you see um, disruptors going to their conferences and putting, you know, up signs and that's great, but we have to tell them what our demands are. Like it's too easy for Bernie to ignore you if mm -hmm. every vegan's already voting for him. Yeah. Right. He doesn't have mm -hmm. to do anything for you, but, but the agriculture industry, this is what they do to both Bernie and Trump. Hmm. You don't know who we're going to vote for. Hmm. What are you going to do for us? If you do something for us, we'll vote for you. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Very okay. much. It's very much like I won't tell you who I'm voting for because hmm. I don't care about your people policy. That's how they think. Hmm. I only care about what you're doing for agriculture. Hmm. This is why food being political becomes intersectional because hmm. it's really hard to vote for somebody who is a really shitty person people wise hmm but has good animal policy. Do you know what I mean? Like people mm -hmm. want their life to holistically be peaceful mm -hmm. and happy. Mm -hmm. And so we've actually never really had a candidate like that. But mm -hmm. um, going back to Cory Booker, mm -hmm. he had good agriculture policy, but people over scrutinized him for something that he did a while back with the pharmaceutical industry. So mm -hmm. they basically, you know, no one had loyalty to the animals there. Mm. You see all of the American vegans saying, I don't care about that one thing you did before mm -hmm. because all I care about is people policy or all I mm. care about is animal policy. Animal right? policies, yeah. Right. So when it comes to polit pol politicians, we are speciesist all the time. Mm. All the time. People want their universal health care. People want their free education, mm. you know. They also want animal liberation, but mm -hmm. how does that play into how they vote? So we have to be better at negotiating. And this is, that's, that's uh, from the U.S. perspective, but I guarantee you have the same situation mm -hmm. with your politicians and, and how divided it is between their people policy and their animal policy. But the advice I leave you with there is you very well need to know what every candidate's agriculture policy is. You have mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot um, going on there.
what is it just for people who like maybe aren't too familiar with what lobbying actually is like what is it that the lobbyist does when they're there like we've all seen like tv shows and stuff of what we think it happens but they take uh, politicians to go golf yeah so it is like that yeah <laughs> I mean, it is like the tv <laughs> like, i don't i'm not saying that that's really the case but it yeah. really is it, it is similar to how businesses create relationships with each other when they want to sell something to that business they're they courting them they're creating nice cities but at the same time you're also creating demands because if you have a good voter pool and you say hey listen i can um, get you uh, mm -hmm. voted in again because a politician once they're elected all they're doing from that point until the next election is figuring out how to get elected again mm -hmm. really all they're doing yeah. and so lobbyists are the channel of communication for all of for corporate America mostly because public doesn't use it as a channel but we need to it's just a channel of communication to educate them on things to create relationships mm -hmm. to get your demands met a lot of these legislators don't actually create their own legislation what happens is a lobbying group does all that work creates the legislation and then they get it sponsored by by that legislator so mm -hmm. we have to be in there um mm -hmm. contesting what agriculture is saying big agriculture dangles the small farmer all the mm -hmm. time as look how many of these small farmers are going bankrupt we need more money when really that small farmer doesn't even get to participate. Mm. We need to be in there to tell these legislators, uh, that's not true. They are dangling a carrot in front of you. They are absolutely not, you know, including these small farmers. They are pushing them out. Um, we need to be able to create a narrative, not just create. Actually, we just need to give the facts. Mm -hmm. um, they've created a fake narrative. We need to give them the facts and we need to shift the thought process in politics about the food system and we need to get it away from being communist like you know it is communist like to force an industry to be successful upon the public's taxes right um and so it used to be socialist like because it was based on welfare like corporate socialism but it now our food system is pretty communist like and um, if all of America knew that, I don't think it would bode that well. People don't yeah. want to be a communist country, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, totally. So, but you know, all of this, I, I don't want to go back to this, but I do. Mm -hmm. um, I only have like 4,000 Instagram followers. Um, I don't go on Facebook much. You know, you max out at a certain point. I can only say so much. And if these leaders in these movements with hundreds of thousands of followers yeah. are leading us in the wrong direction, I don't know how to combat that. And I, I've tried reaching out to many of them mm -hmm. on this subject and I don't get a response or I don't see them ever discussing it in a way. And so I got to wonder, like, you know, I just got to, I just got to wonder about the own, our own cognitive dissonance in this movement. I think we feel like we're perfect because we went vegan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've got, I, I've got maybe two different takes on that. Um, cause I'm quite cynical. So yeah, I, I, I think there's probably is that thing where, um, some of these people genuinely just think that 
you know, they're, they're, they, they have such a poor understanding of politics that they think supply and demand will work. Um, and, you know, they kind of feel like they're, that we're winning because, you know, a new uh, option comes out. It's like, wow, look, and so many people are talking about veganism and all this kind of stuff. And then the other take I have on it is that because these people are making a good living off of this um, selling this dream, yeah, creating vegans and they're getting everyone's liking all their posts and they're getting loads of money. They get to travel around the world. Um, if they actually started telling people, their followers, what the, like how to really fix the system, well, that's not really glamorous at all. It's not. The money's then going to leave them and go towards the political solution. So their lifestyle is going to suffer. So I think a lot of these, especially the ones at the top, they know what, what direction we should be going in. And they're intentionally misleading people because they're making a shitload of money. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're biased just the same, right? They have the biases of, and I've thought about that. I've thought about, you know, perhaps I need to create a monetization strategy where I um, give them a certain rev share of, of whatever traffic or donations they get to us and see if they'll then talk about it. Cause I wouldn't doubt it. Right. Yeah. What, what if I say, Hey, I will give you 40% of every membership that you bring over. And all of a sudden, ding, 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 they respond. I wouldn't doubt, but I don't want to, I don't know that I want to operate that way. Um, because I feel like it creates those hierarchies that I just, it, it drives me nuts. I mean, even if you look at who the vegan darlings are, how diverse are they? Like, are they representative of the vegan movement at all? I mean, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, no. <laughs> They're representative of the mainstream vegan movement, I guess. But there's so much else going on that just doesn't surface because people are out there doing the work and they're not getting the recognition, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Or they don't have, they don't have someone holding a camera mm -hmm. spotlighting them all the time. Cause imagine mm -hmm. in order for them to the people that are videos are being created, mm -hmm. you have to have someone following your every move, you know, while mm -hmm. you're standing at a distance, you have to be mic'd up. You have to have that good video camera. Mm -hmm. You have to have someone editing your videos. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of work. I, editing my videos mm -hmm. <laughs> by myself. I don't even have the bandwidth. It's hard. You know that. Mm -hmm. Editing takes a long time. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of people that are really good at veganizing people. They just don't have someone filming them doing it. And so, you know, the social media aspect of that is great but you kind of have to have a hype person, mm. H Y P E, a hype person following you around everywhere while mm. you're doing what you're doing. When you have a table somewhere, somebody is filming you at that table. When you yeah. have, when you are doing um, cubes of truth, someone mm. is filming you interact with people. There are mm. plenty of people that are great at doing all of that, that just don't have a hype man with them. And that's fine. I mean, I'm not downplaying the fact that that the rest of the vegan movement has ushered and mm. elevated them to that mm. place. I mean, mm -hmm. um, but we over scrutinize other, other people in the movement for things that they do a lot of times. I mean, I see 
you know, some of these same activists, you know, in their bathing suits without their shirt on. And then this next second they're talking about politics or, mm. or whatever it is. And it's like, you know, I don't know if we would take a female seriously if, you know, she was traveling the world and then showing up at a vacation spot in her bikini. And then the next day talking about politics. Does that make sense? Like, would we mm -hmm. still take her seriously? I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's a huge problem just with this whole celebrity culture that um, these people at the top are the voice, the voice of the movement, but what are they really saying? Because they're not really saying anything that is, is going to be taken seriously by the people who need to. Well, they're not yeah, driving animal change. liberation. Yeah. They're not actually driving animal liberation. Oh. You know, I have a full-time job and I, I've, you know, come across this. I, I would just feel like that if they do this as a living all day, every day, they should mm -hmm. absolutely be all over the USDA website or the equivalent mm -hmm. in whatever country. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And the other, the other part of that is that their ideas of social justice, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times people act like they know what the the um ingredients of social justice are they know the social ingredients but they mm. completely rip apart the justice part which is that all of these social justice movements in the past had a very strong lobbying arm in mm. fact the lobbying arm is what they all joined and then they marched together for the mm. most part and so i just you know a lot of people talk about nonviolence and uh, martin luther king and and all these different, uh, you know, aspects Gandhi. of Gandhi. Yeah. They don't relate it to the justice part, which is a, a legal and law part, which is why laws changed. Laws didn't change because somebody in the White House saw you marching out with a sign. The laws changed because you created political relationship. Mm -hmm. And so we are in a movement, I'm not downplaying disruption, but we are in a movement where we base all of our strategies on disruption and not relationships. Yeah. We need to be doing both. We mm -hmm. need to be creating relationships. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. This goes back to me in that street march feeling like I couldn't say things in context and create a relationship with somebody, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. All the way till today in politics, I need to create relationships with people. Mm -hmm. I need to shake their hand figure out what they're after, figure out what, how we, we relate and mm -hmm. tell them what we want. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just like shove my way into their peripheral, mm -hmm. um, with, you know, disrupting, not again, not saying that don't disrupt, but don't, we can't just only disrupt. We have to change this idea about the only way people will listen to vegans is if we disrupt. Yeah and start creating relationships yeah that's the thing it's the relationship part is the that takes time right it takes time and effort and like it networking does. and i think that's maybe a part of it you know it's not the the kind of um the the part that gets you attention is you know having arguments with people in the street and you know getting dairy farmers shouting at you and all this kind of clickbait culture stuff it's just like that's that's what's become the you know the trend really in, in mm -hmm. the movement i think so i think you pretty much covered most of um 
you know what the problem is and and how we need to get there to, to fix it so what um how can people help like what what's the name of the organizations and yeah so we we created two um one is called vegan justice league you can find it at veganjusticeleague.com there's facebook pages as well originally we had this as the educational arm and in the United States, to be able to lobby, you have to create a nonprofit in a way that's called a C4, which allows you to lobby, because otherwise you can't not pay taxes and then put it towards politics. So our legislation, which our first piece of legislation is the At-Risk um, Farmers and Ranchers Diversification Act. Mm. Um, we present that with, a, with our sister group, which is the same founders, called agriculturefairnessalliance.org. And the reason we created a sister org is for that C4 purpose to be able to lobby unlimited, but also the name. Our legislation federally, just to be clear, has to be intersectional. You can't just push an animal piece of legislation through that doesn't tie itself to the voters. It won't get, it won't get voted in. It just won't um, or, or sponsored. And so agriculturefairnessalliance.org is animal abolition focused, but our legislation might help the environment. It might help undocumented workers. It might help small farmers, if that makes sense. And so with that said, that website does talk about four different pillars that align itself with exploitation of agriculture. Again, always abolition is our goal, but it allows us to ally with other groups that get exploited by mm -hmm. the agriculture industry. So agriculturefairnessalliance.org mm -hmm. and then veganjusticeleague.com. We actually plan perhaps to push legislation in the future that is vegan, uh, vegan specific mm -hmm. when it comes to um, that, that isn't tied to the food system. Like the NIH is another corrupt form of tax use it is the um it is basically a health arm uh like the usda but it's our health arm and they distribute billions of dollars to universities to test on animals every year and universities here actually make more money on animal testing grants medical testing grants than they do on their tuition from people and so um our taxes help pay for that too so i think I, there will be other legislation, I think, that will end up uh, pushing. We have to create that lobbying side of Vegan Justice League, too. Anyway, same org, 100% of donations and memberships go to our lobbyists. We are all volunteers. We're very transparent about that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we so desperately need people that have the ability. You know, I don't want someone to put themselves into debt mm -hmm. by... Uh, becoming a member donating, but we need consistent monthly memberships so that we can consistently pay our lobbyists. And the hope is, is to scale. We have to be the most, let's be the as powerful and loyal as we are in activism mm -hmm. with a powerful lobbying group. And then on Instagram, my Instagram handle is vegan underscore Batgirl, like the Batman light, the Batgirl. Um, that's just legacy from the no. silly actors in my deal. Yeah, the bat light might make a comeback at some point though, right? 
it's so much fun. And when you see how big that light is, yeah. oh my God, your heart stops. You're like, oh my God, like <laughs> messages are seven stories big. Yeah. Not, just, not just seven stories high, but it's like, it's 70 feet in diameter, which is seven stories.